greetings, namaste, and shalom, everybody out there in dreamland. I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, and all subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Khan has surfaced in the wake of the battle for control of Michoacan between the Gulf Organization and the Millennium Cartel, sometimes known as the Valencia Family Cartel. The Gulf Group had recruited LFM members to assist them in driving out rivals from the state using its armed wing, the Zetas. The tense climate eventually developed due to the state's increased methamphetamine distribution and mounting dissatisfaction with the Zetas, who were in charge of the Gulf Organization's operations in Michoacan. By choosing to contest the Zetas rule in 2006, LFM was able to drive both the Gulf and the Zetas organizations out of the state and turn themselves into the new narco big shots in the region. In this episode of Narco 101, we shall be delving into the formation, leadership and operations of La Familia Michoacana. In case you are wondering, these are the guys behind the infamous video where they have a pit bull chewing off some poor fella's package. Formation of LFM. The exact date for the formation of LFM is unclear. Some sources say the organization was formed in the 1980s by Carlos Rosales Mendoza. He was once listed as one of the most wanted criminals on the planet by the DEA. This dude was a close friend to Osiel Cárdenas Guillén, one of the powerful leaders and founders of the Gulf Cartel. In one way or another, LFM has always been in close association with the Gulf Cartel. This explains how they became associated with the Zetas. In the year 2000, Amoldo Rueda Medina, alias La Minza, became the number one assassin for La Empresa, which loosely translates to the company, a shadowy criminal organization which later got absorbed by the Gulf Cartel. It is from here that La Minza entered close associations with Nazario Moreno Gonzalez. La Minza being a literal professional hitman, helped run LFM after they decided to cut ties with the Gulf Cartel in 2006. I'm guessing he was in charge of tactical field operations or some similar shit. He was arrested three years later on July 11, 2009. In all fairness, this dude's ruthlessness helped shape LFM and gave them the balls to stand alone as an ARCA organization. La Mensa served under the direct supervision of Nazario Moreno Gonzalez, alias El Chayo, or El Más Loco, which loosely translates to the most crazy. He was supposedly killed by federal police on Friday, December 10, 2010 in a shootout. It turned out that he faked his own death. This was probably to get law enforcement off his back for a little while. He then moved on to create the Knights Templar Cartel, along with Servando Gomez Martinez, alias La Tuta, or The Teacher. We have looked at this dude in a previous episode that discusses the Knights Templar Cartel. I will leave a link to that episode in the description. 
el más loco. José de Jesús Méndez Vargas, el chango. The Resistencia, the Resistance, started off as a Mexican criminal enforcer elite unit that had well-trained gunmen from the Sinaloa Cartel, Gulf Cartel and later, the Knights Templar Cartel originally formed to expel Las Zetas Cartel from the states of Michoacán and Jalisco. They later became Carteles Unidos through the United Cartels. This association, however, did not last. Some sources say El más loco. the supposed death in 2010 was the main cause of the split that led to the formation of the Knights Templar Cartel. I think it is pretty obvious this is far from the truth. El más loco. Faked his own death, aligned with La Tuta, to create the Knights Templar Cartel. This dude's supposed death, however, led to the end of the relationship between El Chango and the Resistencia. He was left with control over a very small and insignificant jurisdiction. He later confessed that he wanted to realign with the Zetas to fight the United Cartels, that now included the newly formed Knights Templar Cartel, that was mainly comprised of former LFM members that jumped ship. He was desperate. He later died on March 9, 2014. For real this time. Many locals in small towns and villages in Michoacan who actually believed he was a good dude mourned his death and he unofficially became a saint. The highest levels of the organization's leadership required all members to conform to LFM's pseudo-Christian fundamentalist philosophy, which is recognized for its cult-like mystique. Some of their Christian teachings seemed tame and harmless, while a majority of it was carefully stipulated to brainwash all new recruits keeping them docile, obedient and ridiculously organized, which made them easy to manage. Before his death, El más loco published his own Bible title, Pensamientos. In it, he described himself and fellow cartel members as valiant men who protected Michoacan and its people. Additionally, the supposed Christian fundamentalist cartel prohibits its members from consuming drugs or alcohol, and in its early days, they reportedly forbade the selling of drugs locally. But selling drugs to other people far away was totally fine. In all this mess, Carlos Rosales Mendoza, the dude credited with forming LFM in the 1980s, mostly stayed incognito. Not much is reported about him during the narco conflicts of the 2010s. I am assuming he chose to stay out of the mess until his death on December 27, 2015. Operations of LFM. As the LFM's name suggests, the group had its base and origins in Michoacan, in particular the mountainous Sierra Madre del Sur. Their support base was located in the seven municipalities that make up Tierra Caliente in southwest Michoacan. Additionally, LFM built branches in the Mexican cities of Guerrero, Morelos, Guanajuato, Colima, Querétaro, and Jalisco. The group was most recently active in the states of Michoacan and Guerrero in 2020, where they battled organizations like the CJNG and other smaller armed cells to defend their jurisdictions. They originally started as a vigilante and anti-crime organization, a community protection sort of militia that was formed to protect the poor helpless locals of Michoacan. Eventually, when the Gulf organization utilized the Zetas to drive the Millennium Cartel out of Michoacan, they were assimilated into the Gulf and Zeta Alliance. LFM members also consider their killings as divine justice in protecting society from rapists, adulterers, and other delinquents. This is where the infamous castrated by Pitbull's gore video serves to attest to their crazy false sense of righteousness. This unity only lasted for a short while, as the Zetas decided to leave the Gulf Cartel. This, in addition to the brutality and unhinged sadism displayed by the Zetas, did not really match with LFM's agenda. 
who can't be masquerading as protectors of the locals, yet you are in bed with the Zetas that have made it their personal business to fuck with the locals. This was not good public relations. Due to these operational differences, LFM and the Zetas entered a period of serious conflict. This was one of the many factors that contributed to the narco conflicts of the 2010s. El más loco. As part of the top leadership of LFM alongside Carlos Rosales Mendoza. Until 2011, when he faked his death, possibly started a narco conflict in the process and ended up breaking away to form the Knights Templar cartel with La Tuta. Apparently he, La Tuta, and a bunch of other LFM members were dissatisfied with how the LFM was conducting business. LFM had become super violent, crazy, and they had started fucking with the locals of Michoacan. I'm guessing they picked up a few habits from the Zetas, as far as brutality and sadism is concerned. Not messing with the locals was one of the few rules that LFM religiously lived by. This made the locals initially look at them as protectors. Due to this, the locals offered them protection and never snitched on them to Mexican law enforcement. Keeping up a close and perfect relationship with the locals was one of the main reasons for their success, since they were basically left in peace to do their narco business. They peacefully operated out of ranches and had many volunteers that were convinced LFM was the right side to be on. The fact that the Zetas were breaking away from the Gulf Cartel caused a whole lot of disorganization and serious conflict in the narco community. Due to this, the Gulf Cartel did not necessarily have the leadership capacity to hold on to LFM. This basically left them exposed to the Zetas' brutality. LFM needed money to continue operating and fighting the Zetas. Due to this, LFM started overtaxing the locals, racketeering, kidnapping and robbing the locals. This did not sit right with El Mas Loco, so he jumped ship. As far as violence goes, the people you ought to watch out for at all costs are folks that believe they are on a spiritual quest, or are convinced they are doing their crazy shit for the greater good. LFM were just on par with the Zetas when it came to brutality and violence. They were side by side in popularizing dismemberments, decapitations and sadistic torture on camera. They may not have conducted any massacres like the Zetas, but they have quite a few gore videos in their catalog. Despite the fact that LFM was once among Mexico's biggest producers and exporters of methamphetamines, in its early years the organization consistently opposed anything to do with the narco community. But over time, they established stronger roots in the rich mountainous region of Sierra Madre del Sur, where they built the necessary facilities and had the ability to grow opium poppies and marijuana plants, and further produce their own cocaine and crystal. In spite of their contested religious authenticity or origins, LFM has played a significant civic, economic, and political role in Michoacan and the surrounding area. A range of social projects, such as the construction and refurbishment of schools and churches, as well as the creation of drainage systems, were conducted or supported by these psycho dudes. Through a number of initiatives and programs, including helping victims of domestic violence and, ironically, running community centers dedicated to drug usage prevention, they were also effective in building a network of social support. LFM controlled nightlife by regulating clubs and other night entertainment locations in place of the local and state governments, showing how pervasive their influence was in pretty much all aspects of daily life. They seemed to genuinely believe they were good folks, even when there are obvious known atrocities committed by them. At the height of their operations, LFM had roughly 30% of the formal commerce in the state under its control, while other reports believe that they may have had an affiliation with up to 85% of legally registered companies. In addition to dealing in serious narcos, including crystal, marijuana, and coke, LFM was also involved in racketeering and smuggling individuals into the United States. 
Additionally, they ran a debt collection business where they retained 20% of the unpaid balance and occasionally kidnapped non-compliant defaulters. Along with extorting taxes, they also lent money to local farmers, businesses, schools, and churches. To avoid frequent conflicts with rival cartels, they simply prefer to solely conduct business within their region. I guess in one way or another, they were pretty wholesome dudes. Since the formation of the Knights Templar Cartel, law enforcement considered LFM to be virtually defunct. Even before the group split, they were thought to be up to three internal factions within LFM, all of them juggling alliances with numerous cartels. One was reportedly linked to the Sinaloa Cartel, another linked to the Gulf Cartel, and yet another with the Beltran Labor Organization. The Executive Council, which El Mas Loco. had previously led, had other internal divisions as well. According to reports, each regional cell had some sort of autonomy. The production of crystal meth would be the focus of one branch, while extortion payments would be collected by another, and the other would be comprised of hitmen and all-around bad dudes. What I would call the Major Crimes Division. Leadership of the current LFM, now rebranded to Nueva Familia Michoacana, is unclear. One thing's for sure, these dudes played a major role in defeating the Zetas. They basically decided to fight fire with fire. Returning sadistic brutality sent towards them, with even more sadistic brutality. Even though LFM of today is a shell of what it once was, the organization is nonetheless deeply ingrained in local communities. These are important to the organization's criminal activities. Thank you for being with me on this sixth episode of Narco 101. Welcome to a rather dark episode of Narco 101 in Gore. In this episode we shall be delving into Cuesas Especialis Grupo Sombra, which translates to Shadow Group Special Forces. They are usually just referred to as Grupo Sombra, or Shadow Group. A simple Google search of these guys will show you a terrifying introduction to this ruthless criminal gang. They are unfriendly, heavily militarized and hot-tempered. They have lots of gore videos online, with them doing unspeakable things to pretty much anyone. Women, men and sometimes teenagers. They decapitate, dismember and do unspeakable things to anybody who is unlucky or stupid enough to cross their path. They basically play by their own rules. They started off as a specialized, highly trained and organized wing of the mighty Gulf Cartel. Although they also have a presence in the central states of Hidalgo and San Luis Potosi. Grupo Sombra is a significant criminal force in the northern region of Veracruz. Narco-trafficking, human trafficking, migrant smuggling, pirate assassinations, kidnapping, extortion, and oil theft are purported specialties of the group in these regions. These guys basically do whatever they can to secure a buck. They are more of criminal mercenaries than a narco-cartel. We are looking at them as a narco-cartel because they are very active in the narco-community, mainly as hired muscle for other cartels or as protection against enemies of cartels. They also break into narco facilities and steal lots of narco inventory from other cartels. For this reason, they piss off a whole lot of organized crime groups, so they are always in conflict with somebody. Hence their bad reputation and temper. The organization's members adopt exceptionally aggressive techniques, often spreading their actions on video, sometimes going as far as leaving the remains of their victims on public streets with messages and warnings. The old school Zetas and CJNG, with the latter rapidly gaining strength in Veracruz, appear to be the group's major rivals. By giving social aid, Grupo Sombra has hoped to win the local community support, 
For example, the organization was one of the several criminal actors that distributed supplies during the first few months of the 2020 lockdowns. They also organized social events, like Children's Day and Mother's Day celebrations, in communities in their jurisdiction. Being quite literally called Shadow Group, leadership of Grupo Sombra is shrouded in absolute darkness. It is virtually impossible to find the leadership hierarchy of this group. Their inner workings are not public knowledge. That being said, if you have any information about the group's leadership, please share in the comments. One of the few instances where an insight into the inner workings of Grupo Sombra was exposed is in a video where one dude that is said to be one of the group's regional leaders was captured by CJNG. In this video, he is interrogated and obviously unceremoniously executed. Let's be honest, if CJNG captures you after you have been fucking with them, you are obviously going to have a very slow and painful death. This dude was called Altoni. Let us just say, he sang like a canary. The next video clip may contain scenes that some viewers may find distressing. Viewer or listener discretion is highly advised. That basically brings us to the end of the Narco 101 segment of this episode. That being said, let's get to the gore. This goes without saying, we shall be discussing rather dark subject matter. Viewer and listener discretion is even more highly advised. This piece of disturbing content is a little under 5 minutes long. It is shot in landscape mode, and is fairly clear compared to many of other videos of this kind. The video opens with scene that shows a pitch black ambience. I'm guessing it is late night. It is super quiet and eerie. Aside from the crickets chirping in the background, the scene has men with various kinds of guns. Some look like semi-automatic weapons. There are men dressed up in various types of clothing holding these guns on standby. Most of them have bulletproof vests with many filled up pockets. I'm not sure if they are actually bulletproof or simply have many pockets to hold ammo. This ambience is lit by what looks like two or four distinct headlights from packed cars. The light basically flashes to the men's torsos and legs, conveniently leaving their faces in the dark. Some of these men appear to be wearing black or brown ski masks. They all have their weapons pointed towards the captured victims. The camera horizontally pans around at an axis to show the rest of the scene. There are almost 15 heavily armed Grupo Sombra men present for this event, give or take. As the camera pans around, there is a dude with a flashlight that beams out white light. The light is significantly lower than the car headlights lighting the scene, but the flashlight dude points directly at the faces of the Grupo Sombra dudes. And it is clear they are all wearing fabric ski masks. Behind the camera is a dude making a speech. We shall get back to that in a moment. It appears that this scene setup has Grupo Sombra dudes standing in a relative semicircle, with four victims kneeling right before them. From the position of their shadows, it appears that the cars are located at the left-hand side of the video, somewhere outside the shot, which is to the right-hand side of the people in the video. The four victims are kneeling at the very center of the scene. They are heavily blindfolded with white fabric. I say heavily blindfolded because these guys have what looks like a thick layer of medical bandages wrapped around their heads. It looks wrapped over and over and over again in some weird way. 
like something straight out of a horror movie. A normal blindfold covers just the eyes, but these guys have their heads covered right from the tip of their nose to the top of their heads, leaving just a little bit of their hair. These bandages look thick and have covered even their ears. So as far as the victims are concerned, they can see absolutely nothing and probably hear just mumbling sound. I do not want to even imagine how psychologically disturbing this must have felt. This old bandages on head thing reminds me of Blackstar, the David Bowie song. The victims have their hands tied with some sort of fabric. The first three dudes from the left have their hands tied behind them, while the dude at the far right has his hands to his front. The first dude, who is the first victim on the left, is wearing what looks like a black polyester t-shirt and black jeans. He looks physically strong, lean and muscular. He seems to be about 5 feet 2 inches tall. He is basically a short muscular dude. He looks like he works out. The second victim is wearing what looks like faded black or brown pants and a red cotton collar t-shirt. He is a big dude. He looks chubby and has what looks like a little bit of man boobs. He looks to be about the same height as the first dude, but physically much larger. The third dude is much larger and muscular than the first two dudes. He is wearing what looks like a black t-shirt and black jeans. He looks physically strong. He does not look like he works out. He just looks like a naturally humongous dude. He could pass for six feet tall. The fourth victim is the smallest of the bunch. He looks to be in his twenties. He has what I would call young skin. Like how physically active dudes look in their twenties. He is wearing grayish super tight jeans, a black full leather belt, and what looks like a crop top, or a really tight vest, for some reason. Remember all these dudes have at least 70% of their heads heavily bandaged. There is not much we can make out in the form of their facial features. All I can say is, they all have thick black hair stuffed at the tip of their heads, where the bandages do not cover. As the video starts, there is a dude speaking. I am not really sure if he is also holding the camera, or some other dude is. He seems to be presenting a strongly worded message to some dude called Alejandro Fernandez. I am guessing, he is like the leader of the criminal group that these four victims belong to. The speech loosely translates to a warning that goes like this. This goes out to all the grasshoppers from La Husteca. Extortionists and people against us, stop all your bullshit, you are all going to die like these pendejos. Where the fuck are you Alejandro Fernandez? Here are your whore You left them here to die and you ran. Stop with all your bullshit. By harboring the people against us, we are the only ones here. A quick side note, La Huasteca is a collective geographical and cultural region around the Gulf of Mexico. This region comprises of territory that includes Tamaulipas, Veracruz, Puebla, Hidalgo, San Luis Potosi, Carataro and Guanajuato, which is pretty much operational areas of Grupo Sombra. He rumbles on and on with his warnings and threats. I am guessing the Mr. Fernandez in question runs point on some criminal operations in this region, and the Grupo Sombra boys were not entirely thrilled with him running his business in their backyard. This is how these four poor souls ended up in this unfortunate situation. Sucks to be Mr. Fernandez. He continues his speech a little longer. At the 52nd mark, one of the Grupo Sombra dudes get into position. Having guns, you'd think, they would just give the victims two to the back of the head, and be done with it. That would be too simple. Four dudes from the group get into position with their axes. They push the victims over, falling on their stomachs. Most narco executions have some little bit of organization and order to them. Let's say taking time to decapitate the victims, slicing their necks or something of the sort. That was not the case in this operation. They just pushed the victims to their stomachs and started swinging. There were four or five dudes with axes, and what looks like long rusty machetes. 
All this happens pretty much at the same time, so I am going to try to paint as vivid a picture as I can. For this, we may not have any clear sound clips for the video, because, some idiot went ahead and added a song to the video. The whole thing kind of looks like a music video now. I might have forgotten to mention this before. All this happens on a brown dirt ground. There is gravel and soil all over. The first dude takes his axe, lifts it high up, and thrusts it into the neck of the first victim from the left. This is the lean dude in the black polyester t-shirt. This one strike almost fully decapitates him. This cut goes right through about 70% of the victim's neck. The sheer force and sharpness of the axe makes it go right through the neck and into the ground. I am certain this dude had the quickest and probably most painless death. The first axe dude makes a second swing. This goes into another spot, not into the first cut. He makes a third cut into the corpse's jaw and it gets wedged in there for a second. The axe dude yanks it out and takes multiple consecutive swings, trying to decapitate the corpse. As this is done, the camera pans around to the far right of the screen to show two machete dudes trying to chop into the third and fourth victim's necks. These executioners are ridiculously inaccurate and careless. They basically made multiple cuts in different spots, putting the victims in ridiculously unnecessary pain. On the fourth victim for example, the machete dude cuts into his jaw once, then cuts into his neck. But he does this with very little force that it creates just a really big wound. Remember this dude had his hands tied to his front. So he lifts up his bound hands to try and shield his head. The machete dude just continues chopping into the arm and hands that are trying to cover the victim's neck. As this is done, the victim lets out wet muffled screams. I say wet screams because it sounds like he has something stuck in his neck and is trying to scream. This is obviously because of the giant hole he has on his neck. His muffled screams are kind of heard above the ridiculous music added to the video. As he makes noise, the machete dude keeps hacking into his arms, right into the bone. Also, at this point, the light clearly shows he is wearing really tight blue jeans. Not black like I earlier mentioned. As he has his hands raised to protect his neck, he leaves his stomach exposed. Remember he was wearing what looks like a crop top or a really small vest. By this time, he is laying on his right side and trying to coil up his legs to protect his torso, but the side of his stomach is greatly exposed. The machete dude tries to hold and stretch out his right coiled up leg in order to expose his stomach. The victim kicks around and yanks his legs off the machete dude's hands. He picks up the leg one more time, holds it stretched out and whistles to someone out of the shop. As soon as this is done, some dude shows up into the shop, and almost immediately, the pointy side of a giant pickaxe is lodged into the victim's side torso, right into his ribcage. The camera pans away towards the first victim. As this happens, the third victim is shown, laying lifeless as another machete dude severs through his lifeless neck. It seems most of his action was done out of shot, as the camera was focused on the fourth victim with the crop top. In all this, the second victim, with a red t-shirt, is still untouched. He is lying flat on the ground. He seems to have been forgotten, as the action happens on the three other victims. Remember their heads were totally bandaged. So his eyes see nothing, he can probably hear nothing. All he can do is smell. And I am pretty sure he at least can smell all the blood soaking into the ground all around him. This is why, I zeroed in on the fact that their heads were completely bandaged. This is tremendously psychologically tormenting. He can't see or hear anything. All he can do is wait to die. And, he has no idea when or where it is coming from. It could be now, or tomorrow. He might have even thought he would be spared. To me, that is one of the scariest situations to be in. His virginity however did not last, as the camera panned around, one of the axe dude wedged the blade right into his neck. 
As he is lying on his right side, the axe dude comes from behind and cuts right into the back of his neck, severing his spinal cord. I was reading up on human anatomy sometime, and it turns out that once the spinal cord is severed, the body does not feel pain. It may be involuntarily alive, but since the connection to the brain is cut off, there is no interpretation of the concept of pain. So I'm pretty sure this dude had a pretty painless exit too. For a couple moments, the camera just pans around from left to right, showing the group of somber dudes just going to town on the victims. Surprisingly, the annoying music stops for a moment, and the camera pans back to the crop top guy. I'm now certain that his ridiculously tight t-shirt is simply stretched up and stuck above his stomach, so he is not wearing a crop top, it is a tight armless t-shirt. This dude is hysterically screaming. The next few seconds of this episode contains an audio clip that some viewers and listeners may find distressing. Viewer and listener discretion is highly advised. As this dude screams, you can clearly hear the sound of machetes digging into flesh and getting wedged into bone or even cutting right through and reaching the blood-soaked ground. For this last dude, he had it worse than everyone else. The pickaxe dude is continuously digging into his torso. For context, the pointed end of this heavy pickaxe is about 12 inches. This dude lifts it up and thrusts about 8 inches of that into any spot on the victim's torso. He does this about 3 or 4 times, and one of the machete dudes comes in and swings his machete with tremendous force that cuts about 5 inches into the victim's stomach from the side. At this point he is lying on his left side. The machete dude swings a few more times, and with each cut, fresh red flesh is exposed. Remember he is cutting right below the ribs and above the waist. If you can touch that part on your body, you will notice that it is ridiculously soft. So on this dude, the machete easily cuts through with each new cut. And it is not like he is trying to make careful and precise cuts. He is just swinging and thrusting into wherever gravity lands the machete. The pickaxe dude takes one giant swing and lands it into the victim's jaw. This last hit shuts him up. To add insult to injury, one of the machete dudes taps him with a machete to check if he's still responsive. Once they are certain he is gone, one of the axe dudes comes into the shot, he lodges his axe into the corpse's neck. The camera pans back to the first dude in the black polyester t-shirt. At this time, he is long gone. One of the axe dudes in an attempt to fully decapitate the corpse, takes a swing, and it gets lodged into the corpse's skull. He tries to carelessly yank it off. The axe is in too deep, so steps on the skull with his heavy leather boots, and tries to yank out his axe some more. The rest of the video just shows different scenes of the dudes going to town on the corpses. Just chopping, yanking, chopping and yanking, trying to decapitate the corpses. The next two minutes of the video is pretty much repetitive to the end, with them, trying to dismember the bodies. I have seen quite a few of these videos, and this one was one of the most carelessly done. Their tools were blunt, and these dudes have no aim. Not to mention careless as fuck. I'm guessing they simply wanted to go for the absolute shock factor and nothing else. Let us just say Grupo Sombra is not a criminal gang you'd ever want to fuck with. It turns out that the music that was playing in the background is cartel music, specifically bragging about the exploits of Grupo Sombra. March 2011, the Knights Templar emerged as a splinter group of the once mighty Familia Michoacana. 
The Knights Templar, like their predecessors, portrayed themselves as a community self-defense movement fighting on behalf of the defenseless communities of Michoacan against Mexico's larger criminal narco groups, and frequently used religious imagery in their public communications. The arrest or killing of several top leaders in 2014 and 2015, screwing with the locals, among other factors, greatly destabilized this criminal organization's future. They mostly overcame these challenges and continued to rampage as a fringe, insignificant group in southern Mexico. Welcome to episode 5 of the Narco 101 series. In this series, we single out one organized crime group and dissect it inside out. We look at formation, organization, operations, personalities, atrocities committed, and in some cases, the downfall of these organizations. In this case, we shall be delving into the Knights Templar Narco Organization. This is not to be confused with the historical Knights Templar, the Order of Chivalry. The ones we're looking at in this episode are just some narco scumbags ravaging through communities in Michoacan. Formation and Operations In March 2011, the Knights Templar proclaimed their arrival in Mexico's criminal underworld by hanging banners throughout Michoacan state, declaring that they would now be carrying out the charitable activities previously performed by La Familia Michoacana. This came after the assumed death of Nazario Moreno Gonzalez, alias Elmas Loco, the familiar spiritual leader, in late 2010, and the subsequent announcement that the crime group was being disbanded. However, it was an open secret that he was still alive until his actual death at the hands of Mexican Marines in March 2014. We shall look at La Familia Michoacana in one of our subsequent episodes of Narco 101. All I can say for now is that they are a peculiar bunch. For starters, depending on who you ask, these guys are still very active to this day. The original LFM seemed to have this moral superiority complex where they looked at themselves as a charity organization rooted in Christianity. Yet the bodies dropped in their wake tell a whole different story. Just sub to the channel and turn notifications on so you do not miss any upcoming episodes. I upload once or twice a week. Now back to the Knights Templar. The organization takes its name from a medieval military religious order tasked with defending pilgrims on their way to the Holy Land, the members of which were known for their morality and fearlessness on the battlefield. Needless to say, they seem to want to hold themselves to that high level of morality, holiness, and sense of purpose, while trafficking the racketeering, kidnapping, and unfairly taxing locals in their areas of operations. Quite ironic, if you ask me. During their strange semi-religious initiations, new recruits wear replicas of Roman warrior helmets during induction ceremonies and distribute propaganda in the communities, promoting themselves as champions of the fight against materialism, injustice, and tyranny. Like I did mention, they carried on that full sense of moral superiority inherited from the Familia Michoacana, while doing unspeakable things in the shadows. The group even declared a temporary ceasefire ahead of Pope Benedict XVI's visit to Mexico in March 2012. The group benefits from being located in Michoacan, because it gives them control over the major port city of Lazaro Cadenas. The Knights Templar have access to coke shipments from South America, as well as crystal and other chemical products from Asia, which they either use or send north to the U.S. border. Having a jurisdiction this strategic basically meant lots of money for them. They basically taxed a majority of these products passing through their territory, so they accumulated lots of operational capital in the process. The Knights, like the LFM before them, have little control over the cross-border narco trade into the United States, due to their power base in Michoacan. As a result, they are forced to negotiate with other narco groups, in order to transport their products up north. 
The context, trading narco product into the United States is where the actual money is. So whoever controls the border territories makes the most money. Aside from narco trafficking, the Knights make a lot of money by extorting businesses in their areas of influence. This is yet another legacy of LFM, which was estimated to have charged protection fees to at least 90% of legal businesses in Mutual Khan at its peak. The Knights' extortion activities were bolstered by their influence over local government officials, which they achieved through intimidation and the distribution of narco profits. So, as we have established from pretty much most of our episodes, the local governments were always in on the action. In an August 2012 video appearance, Servando Gomez, alias Latuta, a top operative for the Knights, described his organization as a brotherhood, founded by a set of statutes and codes, dedicated to protecting the people of Michoacan from organized crime, and singled out the Zetas as one of the criminal groups causing terror, which in all fairness was pretty true. The Zetas were a menace to Mexican communities during this time, but these guys were simply taking advantage of the rampage and profiting from it. It is a well-known fact that most of these local defense units start off with moderately good intentions, but go off the rails after experiencing just a little bit of power and influence. They usually end up becoming the very thing they set out to fight. And the Knights Templars were no different. One of the reasons why they broke away from the LFM is the fact that they got greedy and started screwing with the locals. It was a core principle of the LFM never to screw with the locals of Michoacan. In some twisted way, they actually protected the locals. Some folks in the LFM had a whole different idea, so the Knights Templar was formed. They claimed to follow these codes, but brutalized the locals who did not pay up the high taxes and protection fees. They actively got into organized crime, and this was convenient because the LFM was weakening and losing territory due to managerial and operational issues. The Twisted Code The Code of the Knights Templar of Michoacan includes several Christian principles intended to make narco group members believe they are serving a greater purpose than the cultivation, manufacture, and sale of narcos, primarily and marijuana. Article 8 requires Templars to selflessly love and serve all humanity. According to Article 9, a Templar Knight understands that there is a God, a life created by him, an eternal truth, and a divine purpose to serve God and mankind. Article 16 makes an odd call to respect diversity, given the narco group's logic of neutralizing rivals. The Templars should not have a negative attitude towards any man created by God, no matter how different or strange he is. This is strange because there are literally videos of them online pulverizing their rivals to pieces. So much for not having any negative attitude towards any man created by God. The Templars, on the other hand, should understand how others seek God, going a step further. Article 17 states unequivocally that the narco group's qualitative component is to seek truth through God. The Templar soldier cannot be enslaved by sectarian beliefs and shallow opinions. God is truth, and there is no truth apart from God. The Templar must always seek the truth because God exists in the truth. This whole thing is pretty much a giant mindfuck to get impoverished youths to become sicarios and have a sense of brotherhood, meaning, and community. It is very similar to something you'd find in a cult. Except in this case, these guys are serious narco-dealers. The narco-group's battle gear and ceremonial guard were replicas of those worn by the medieval Knights Templar. For initiation rituals of new members and other special occasions, chainmail mail armor, helmets, swords, maces, and white robes embroidered with the signature red cross were used. 
reinforcing the idea that recruits were not just joining a narco-criminal gang, but a paramilitary sect dedicated to defending the noble but defenseless people of Mutual Khan in the face of foreign invasion, in the form of the Zetas. In all this mess, these guys were just as brutal as the Zetas or CJNG. There are videos in Not Safe for Life communities showing these dudes doing terrible things to their rivals or anyone who opposed them. In the same fashion, there are also videos of them getting similar treatment. Leadership Like we have established, this organization is somewhat a direct remnant of the LFM. Due to this, their core principles are pretty much the same. This includes the false sense of moral superiority, religious misinterpretations, and the brainwashing of new recruits. The Knights Templar were formed by Nazario Moreno Gonzalez, alias Elmas Loco, which translates to the crazy one. A nickname he earned from his childhood as a ridiculously violent and troubled kid. Elmas Loco was born on March 8, 1970, in a small ranching village in Michoacan. It is said he had 12 siblings. His heavily alcoholic and womanizing father abandoned the family when Elmas Loco was just a prepubescent boy, leaving his mother to single-handedly raise this humongous family all by herself. It is said Elmas Loco's mama was a ridiculously strict and no-nonsense woman that raised her kids with a highly religious upbringing. It is from this that Elmas Loco gets his religious, paranoid, and strict compulsive way of life. Despite being raised Catholic, Elmas Loco converted to the Jehovah's Witness faith during his time in the United States. He returned to Michoacan, a changed man. I use the word change very lightly in this case. The point is, he was not the same dude anymore. He preached to the poor and carried a Bible with him at all times. With time, he gained the trust of several people in the community, and many began to regard him as a messiah, for preaching religious principles and founding La Familia Michoacana. The narco group disguised as a vigilante group, aimed at protecting the defenseless people he claimed to love so very much. He formed LFM along with Carlos Rosales Mendoza and a few other folks. We shall explore that angle when we look at LFM in its own Narco 101 episode. He mandated that his men carry a spiritual manual that he had written himself. This semi-religious text contains pseudo-Christian self-improvement platitudes, some of which we have looked at in the previous segment of this episode. Elmas Loco forbade his men from consuming alcoholic beverages or other narcotics in his Bible and vowed to severely punish those who mistreated women. His writings advocated the corporal punishment of thieves, such as beating them and forcing them to walk naked through city streets, with signs listing their crimes as a form of public humiliation. He forbade his narco group members from consuming or selling crystal in Machokin, claiming that the narco was only to be smuggled into the US for American consumption. How noble. Moreno Gonzalez justified narco-trafficking by claiming that the LFM regulated the narco-trade to prevent people from being exploited. The book, also known as The Craziest One Sayings, discusses humility, service, wisdom, brotherhood, bravery, and God. He used pretty much this exact style of management when he formed the Knights Templar Gang. We shall look at the rest of his extensive criminal career when we delve into the LFM. The assassination of Almas Loco and his second-in-command, Enrique Salas, alias El Quique, in a matter of weeks in March 2014, rendered the Knights Templar's leadership largely impotent. Offensives by vigilante groups and state security forces against the narco group have reduced their power and influence in the region. Savando Gomez Martinez, alias La Tuta, took over the narco group Central Command until he was apprehended by Mexican authorities in February 2015. By the way, Latuta was a teacher by profession. In another life, these dudes would have made really responsible members of society. 
In the 2012 video, he explained the Knights Templars' peaceful credentials and asked the leaders of Mexico's narco-trafficking organizations to join forces and bring down Miguel Trevino Morales, alias C-40, one of the Zetas' leaders, which was a pretty reasonable request. Considering the fact that the Zetas were rampaging through Mexico and destabilizing any form of order, both in the community and in the criminal underworld, they had to be taken care of by any means necessary. He emphasized that the Knights Templar were a necessary evil, and that his organization was not a narco gang, nor any kind of organized criminal group. They were a brotherhood founded on a set of rules and regulations. The Knights were headed by Latuta, a charismatic leader who frequently used social media to increase his notoriety. However, it is unknown who, if anyone, is waiting in the wings to replace Latuta, who was apprehended in February 2015. Between 2015 and 2017, it was unclear who was the primary leader of the group. However, prior to his arrest, El Chimizo was said to have held the group's largest territorial leadership position. Ignacio Rintera Andrade, alias El Chimizo, one of the last alleged Knights Templar leaders, was arrested by Mexican security forces in Michoacan in June 2017. The Knights Templar Today While the Knights were primarily active in their home state of Michoacan, they were also active throughout central Mexico, particularly in the states of Guanajuato, Morelos, and Guerrero. The Knights Templar, now badly fragmented and splintered into other groups such as Las Viagras, do not appear to have a clear leader as of 2022. Many sources say they have been officially defeated and disbanded. The Knights have been at odds with the remaining members of La Familia Michoacana. However, the Knights were recently driven out of many Michoacan cities by self-defense groups backed by government forces. A significant number of Knights Templar members are thought to have defected to other criminal organizations, including self-defense forces. Splinter factions of the group, particularly Las Viagras, are fighting for control of key jurisdictions with powerful groups such as CJNG. A special thank you to our podcast community. Narco 101, the Gulf Cartel. Cartel del Golfo. Also known as the Gulf Cartel, is one of Mexico's oldest criminal organizations. Its connections are deep-rooted in the fabric of Mexican society along the United States-Mexico border region. The cities of Matamoros, Renasa, Nuevo Laredo, and Miguel Elena are some of the main areas where the group's strategic operations are based. They are one of Mexico's most remarkable organized crime groups, but have recently lost some of their strongholds, which included distribution networks, areas of operations and strategic influence. This is thanks in part to the efforts of the Mexican government's law enforcement and military special forces. Despite years of tiny guerrilla conflicts, the Gulf Cartel has maintained control over the majority of the province of Tamaulipas. Their network is considered to be multinational, with connections to criminal organizations in Europe, West Africa, Central America, South America, the United States and Asia. In addition to drug trafficking, the Gulf Cartel engages in racketeering, executions, extortions, kidnappings, and other illegal operations. The Gulf Cartel has expanded its economic profile, waged war on competing organizations, and even exerted influence on the American side of the border. Their influence is apparent, as their corruption and infiltration of law enforcement has been exposed plenty of times. The Gulf Cartel continues to strengthen and expand its footprint in the United States through leveraging and recruiting street and prison gangs across Texas. 
As a result, the organization is still active and operational today. Welcome to Baggage Unclaimed. In this episode of Narco 101, we shall be delving into the Gulf Cartel. This episode is pretty thick, because the Gulf Cartel is one of the oldest and biggest crime organizations in the narco world, so naturally there is quite a whole lot to unpack. We shall be looking at the formation, leadership, activities, and decline of this once humongous crime syndicate. This is Narco 101 Episode 4. Please make sure to check out the other episodes. I will leave a link to that playlist in the episode description. Whether you are listening as a podcast or watching as a YouTube video, please subscribe or leave a thumbs up. Your engagement is the best way to support the channel, and this in one way or another keeps the lights on around here. History and Formation of the Gulf Cartel Juan de Palmaceno Guerra created the Gulf Cartel in the early 1970s. During the Prohibition era in the 1930s, Guerrero was one of the first Mexican mobsters, smuggling booze into the United States from the Mexican state of Tamaulipas. Due to his connections, Guerrero became politically involved in the region during the 1970s, and he began smuggling marijuana, heroin, and other contraband into the United States with ease. This greatly increased his influence and ambition. Guerrero's nephew, Juan Garcia Abrego, later assumed command of the Gulf Cartel's day-to-day operations as his uncle concentrated his attention on the local political scene. During the 1980s, Juan Garcia was able to extend his operation to include coke, and it was at this time that he displayed his capacity to take his cartel to the global stage by creating an alliance with the Matamoros Cartel in Mexico and the Cali Cartel in Colombia. This way, he guaranteed shipment routes and a steady supply of great quality drugs from Colombia. Juan Garcia negotiated a contract with the Cali Cartel, a Colombian crime syndicate, looking for fresh entrance points into the U.S. market, after U.S. law enforcement shut down its Caribbean routes. From a commercial standpoint, it was a tempting deal for both the Cali Cartel's leaders, the Rodriguez Arejuela brothers, and the Mexicans. According to the deal, the Gulf Cartel under Juan Garcia's leadership would handle coke shipments over the Mexican border, taking up all risks and up to 50% of the profits. This made him incredibly wealthy and powerful. The Gulf Cartel was said to be making billions of dollars every year in the 1990s. To minimize losses due to confiscation or embezzlement inside the cartel, these financial profits from the interior of the United States had to be transported back to Mexico or laundered in a well-thought-out technique. Under Juan Garcia, the Gulf Cartel was able to build a sophisticated network across the U.S. from Matamoros, in Renosa, Mexico, to Brownsville, Texas, and to other key hubs like New York, Atlanta, Houston, and beyond. The Gulf Cartel steadily built a solid network of corrupt officials, most of whom were in the Tamaulipas regional government at various levels of leadership. Soon after the Gulf Cartel network was solid, Juan Garcia, nicknamed the Gulf's drug lord, was arrested and extradited to the United States, and his deputy, Asiel Cardenas Guellen, assumed leadership. Asiel is said to be a business and operations visionary, but paranoid as fuck. During this time other drug kingpins like Armado Carrillo Fuentes, also known as Lord of the Skies, of the Juarez Cartel, quickly followed Juan Garcia's path. They began demanding greater control over distribution of coke from their Colombian partners, rather than settling for just a share of the transportation fees they had previously agreed to. Juan Garcia's connections to the United States stretched beyond Mexican government corruption. 
With the arrest of Juan Antonio Ortiz, one of Juan Garcia's key traffickers, it was revealed that the cartel shipped tons of coke on U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service buses between 1986 and 1990. Because they were never detained at the border, the buses made excellent transportation, according to Antony Ortiz. A quick side note. The Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, was a division of the United States Department of Justice. The INS was given authority to handle all legal and illegal immigration and citizenship matters. Their mission was to safeguard and enforce immigration laws, and to manage the process of a person becoming a citizen of the United States. The INS was split into three new agencies. These included, USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, CBP, Customs Border and Protection, and then, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, all of which were placed under the newly formed Department of Homeland Security. In a nutshell, the Gulf Cartel was using elements of the U.S. Immigration's Department to smuggle drugs. As a result, by the end of the 1990s, Mexican drug cartels had established coke, meth, and heroin trafficking networks that rivaled the Cali cartel in operations, sophistication, and profit. It was estimated in 1994 that the Gulf Cartel handled one-third of all coke shipments into the United States from the Cali cartel, their Colombian suppliers. Remember, the Gulf Cartel and the Cali cartel were in bed together, and this made their joint venture super powerful and lucrative. Other cartels adapted this strategy of getting into bed with their Colombian suppliers, which meant trouble for the Gulf Cartel. This was because their rivals were becoming just as powerful and formidable, with a whole lot of narco money to burn. In 1995, the FBI put Juan Garcia on its top 10 most wanted list, because his business had expanded to such threatening proportions. He was the first narco kingpin to be included on the list. Juan Garcia was detained outside a ranch in Monterrey, Nuevo Leon, on January 14, 1996. He was extradited to the United States shortly after his capture, and underwent trial eight months later. Juan Garcia was found guilty of money laundering, drug possession, and narco trafficking on 22 counts. The court also ordered the seizure of $350 million of Juan Garcia's assets, which was $75 million more than what had been expected previously. Juan Garcia is now incarcerated at the Hazleton United States Penitentiary in West Virginia, where he is serving multiple life sentences. He is 77 years old as of the making of this episode. The Headless Cartel Juan Garcia's arrest by Mexican authorities in 1996, and subsequent extradition to the United States, created a power vacuum, and several top members competed for control. Juan Garcia's brother, Humberto Garcia Brigo, attempted and failed to take over the leadership of the Gulf Cartel. He lacked leadership traits and the support of their Colombian drug suppliers. Furthermore, he was being watched, and was well known, as his surname suggested more of the same style of leadership as his brother, who was overtaxing the Cali cartel suppliers. He was to be replaced by Oscar Mallerby de Leon, and Raul Valadaris del Angel, but they were arrested soon after their leadership started. This led to a power conflict among the cartel lieutenants. While in prison, Oscar Mallerby de Leon attempted to bribe officials with $2 million in exchange for his release, but he was turned down. As you can imagine, $2 million in the 90s was a shit ton of cash. Hugo Baldomero Medina Garza, alias El Senior Paterino de los Trailers, which loosely translates to the Godfather Lord of the Trailers, was one of the most influential figures in the Gulf Cartel's reorganization. I'm assuming his smuggling game was off the charts. For more than 40 years, he was one of the cartel's top officers, smuggling around 20 tons of coke to the United States each month. 
This dude was working for the group before it even became the Gulf Cartel. He was like some sort of narco uncle. In November 2000, his luck ran out when he was arrested in Tampico, Tamaulipas, and imprisoned in La Palma. Following Medina Garza's arrest, his cousin, Adalberto Garza Dragostinovas, was investigated for allegedly being a member of the Gulf Cartel and money laundering. This brush with authority basically messed up his leadership aspirations. Sergio Gomez, alias El Chico, was the next in line, but his reign was cut short when he was assassinated in Valle Hermoso, Tamaulipas, in April 1996. After assassinating Salvador Gomez Herrera, alias El Chava, co-leader of the Gulf Cartel and a close friend of his, Asiel Cardenas Guellen, took control of the cartel in July 1999, earning him the moniker Mata Amigos, which translates to friend killer. Even in prison, Asiel Cardenas Guellen was a natural organizer. He started his criminal career by selling coke passes, while working as a mechanics assistant. He rose to become what, with the help of his high school studies, Asiel built a vertical clandestine organization made up of cells, led by his best lieutenants, from whom he demanded respect, obedience, absolute loyalty, and accountability. Since ordering the assassination of El Chava, some of his closest allies have claimed that his leadership was bloodthirsty and feared. He basically stole the throne. Personally, I believe running a successful drug cartel requires some level of craziness. This is evident as the Gulf Cartel leadership stabilized for nearly a decade after all this. Asiel Cardenas Guellen, being the paranoid dude that he is, saw his worst nightmares coming to life. As much as other rivals were not actively out to get him and the Gulf Cartel, he knew it was just a matter of time before they did. And he was not going to just sit around and wait for them to come. I am guessing he believed a good defense is a great offense, so he had a brilliant plan in mind. Formation and Operations of Las Zetas Inside the Gulf Cartel At least 31 former members of Mexico's special forces were recruited by Asiel to work as security enforcers for at least three times their previous pay. They were excellent professional soldiers, said to have been trained by the U.S. government with tactical combat skills, never before seen by most of their drug trafficking competitors. They were capable of fast deployment operations in practically any location. They also fit perfectly with Asiel's more ruthless confrontational leadership style. These later became known as Las Zetas. In our first Narco 101 episode, we looked at Las Zetas in great detail. I will leave a link to that in the description if you'd like to know more about them. In a nutshell, Las Zetas were brutal, well-paid, well-equipped, and well-trained, so they had nothing to lose. It is safe to say the Las Zetas were the semi-independent security wing of the Gulf Cartel. It was around this period that the Gulf Cartel and Las Zetas would wage war against the Sinaloa Cartel. Las Zetas' first mission was to eliminate Los Chachos, a group of low-level drug traffickers working for the Millennium Cartel, who fought the Gulf Cartel for control of Tamaulipas's trafficking routes in 2003. Ivanicio Roman Garcia Sanchez, alias El Chacho, who had decided to abandon the Gulf Cartel and form an alliance with the Tijuana Cartel, was eventually executed by Las Zetas as well. These dudes were kicking ass, cleaning house and taking out the trash. Let's just say this was one of the best decisions Asiel made for the Gulf Cartel. As Asiel's power and dominance grew, he extended Las Zetas' tasks, and the group became increasingly crucial to the Gulf Cartel's daily operations. They began to arrange kidnappings, collect taxes, collect debts, run protection rackets, dominate the extortion business, secure coke supply and trafficking routes known as plazas, and execute their enemies, often with gruesome violence. Needless to say, they were really good at their job. 
They were merciless and heavily equipped with superior weapons. In reaction to the Gulf Cartel's growing strength, the Sinaloa Cartel formed Las Negras, a heavily armed and well-trained enforcer organization. The group operated similar to Las Zetas, but with less complexity and success. Las Zetas basically initiated the militarization and absurd brutality that many other narco groups have adopted today. These dudes caused a bunch of cartel conflicts that led to many massacres, death of innocent civilians, and destruction of many towns and cities. Due to threats against U.S. officials and a security danger to the South Texas region as a result of his drug activity, Asiel rapidly became a high-value target for the U.S. security establishment, with a $2 million bounty for his capture. He was captured in a battle between the Mexican military and Gulf Cartel members on March 14, 2003. As a result of this incident, the Gulf Cartel began to lose some of its strategic strongholds, as well as the influential dynamics on organized crime in the Tamaulipas state, including the operating environment. This resulted in a hostile leadership shift in the region, resulting in a highly volatile situation. For five years, the Gulf Cartel worked alongside Las Zetas, but finally Las Zetas attempted to declare independence and wage war against the Gulf Cartel. For the next eight years, this caused pockets of conflict over strategic territories. It's unknown which of the two, the Gulf Cartel or Las Zetas, began the conflict that eventually led to their split. However, it is apparent that, following Asiel's capture and extradition, Las Zetas outperformed the Gulf Cartel in terms of revenue, membership, and influence. According to some reports, as a result of Las Zetas' dominance, the Gulf Cartel felt threatened by the growing force of their assassin squad and sought to restrict their influence, but ultimately failed, resulting in a massive conflict. It is evident that Las Zetas became a little too independent to the extent that they did not see any need to have the Gulf Cartel's leadership anymore. Antonio Ezequiel Cardenas Guellen, alias Tony Tormenta, assumed leadership of the Gulf Cartel in this period of turmoil until his death on November 5, 2010. He was killed after a six-hour firefight in the northern city of Matamoros. Some sources say Tony Tormenta was addicted to sex, gambling, and heavy drugs. He was always so high and generally lacked the leadership and vision to drive the Gulf Cartel towards a successful future. It is said that this is one of the reasons why Las Zetas decided to go independent of the Gulf Cartel. Remember that Las Zetas' top leadership was mostly comprised of former military men that followed a strict code and had some level of discipline. They looked at it as demeaning, taking orders from a weak and baked sex-addicted dude with no leadership or strategic vision. There is no doubt his leadership was short-lived. The Gulf Cartel would then suffer another period of leadership turmoil like the one they faced before Asiel took over and restored control in the late 90s. It is said Asiel maintained control of the cartel from behind bars for a couple of years until he could not conveniently give orders anymore. It is this influence of Asiel from behind bars that has somewhat kept Las Zetas at bay. His leadership was strong and respected. When Asiel lost his footing, Tony Tormenta basically began calling the shots officially. This made Las Zetas officially jump ship. Due to this, Tony Tormenta needed security. He then beefed up the operations of Las Escorpionis, the Scorpions. The quick side note, the Scorpions existed prior to this moment, but their operations were mainly concentrated in specific pockets of Gulf Cartel territory. Following the departure of Las Zetas as the main security enforcers of the Gulf Cartel, Tony Tormenta needed security. He decided to beef up the operations of the Scorpions. He basically promoted, equipped, and gave them clearance to operate in all the Gulf Cartel territory that was now under threat from Las Zetas. 
and 2010 it was around the time that Los Zetas were officially breaking away from the Gulf Cartel. They quite literally turned their weapons on their former employers, and this greatly weakened the Gulf Cartel. Amalulipas was mostly spared from the violence until mid-2010, when Los Zetas separated from the Gulf Cartel and turned against them, igniting a brutal territorial conflict. When the conflict broke out, the Gulf Cartel worked together with their old rivals, the Sinaloa Cartel and La Familia Michoacana, to take out Las Zetas. As a result, the Juarez Cartel, the Beltran Leyva Cartel, and the Tijuana Cartel, united with Las Zetas. This was pretty much the beginning of the infamous drug conflicts of the 2010s. The Headless Cartel 2.0 Just like the late 90s, the Gulf Cartel would then suffer another period of lack of strategic leadership. During this period, each leader took control, only serving for a couple of months before getting captured, killed or overthrown. Basiel's other brother, Mario Cardenas Guellen, and Jorge Eduardo Castilla Sanchez, alias El Cos, believed to be a former Mexican police officer, filled the leadership vacuum that was left and became the Gulf Cartel's leaders. El Cos was believed to be leading the group's day-to-day -day operations until he was captured in September 2012. After El Cos's arrest, the organization was left without a clear successor. Hector David Delgado Santiago, alias El Metro 4, one of the contenders to succeed El Cos, was executed by unknown assailants in January 2013. Following the January execution, Mario Ramirez Trevino, alias X-20, a hitman, and a man believed to be El Metro 4's internal rival, briefly took over as the organization's leader. He was arrested in Tamaulipas in August 2013 as part of the Mexican Army operation, a week after 24 members of his group were arrested. He was imprisoned in Mexico, but he is also wanted in the United States on charges of drug trafficking and organized crime. His arrest, like that of past cartel leaders, created another power vacuum in the increasingly splintered cartel. Julian Manuel Loyas Asalinas, alias El Comandante Toro, eventually took command of the group and headed a group of hitmen in Renasa, Tamaulipas, the Gulf Cartel's typical hub. He was assassinated by Mexican federal authorities in April of 2017. In May of that same year, the Mexican army arrested yet another Gulf cartel leader, Jose Antonio Roma Lopez, alias La Hamburguesa, putting the group's leadership in jeopardy once more. Alfredo Jose Cardenas Martinez, alias El Contador, and the nephew of previous cartel leader Asiel Cardenas Gillen, was the only one of the group's commanders who remained standing amidst all this leadership mess and drug conflicts. His term, however, was cut short by authorities, who captured him in Tamaulipas in early 2018. Although it's unclear where the Gulf Cartel's leadership stands currently, the group has managed to maintain a considerable presence in Mexico's organized crime landscape by forming partnerships with smaller splinter cells and bolstering their usual areas of operations. I think it is safe to say that the Gulf Cartel gradually broke down without protection from the mighty Las Zetas that were rampaging through the narco world. The Gulf Cartel of Today Las Edas and the Gulf Cartel have their origins in Matamoros, Mexico's border city. The Gulf Cartel once ruled Tamaulipas, but it has been at odds with Las Edas since 2010. There have been violent fights between the two parties in Matamoros. The city, often known as the Great Door of Mexico, is strategically significant. 
The Gulf Cartel had a stronghold on drug trafficking in Tamaulipas for decades, turning Matamoros into a hub for its illegal activities. The Gulf Cartel's strategic location in Matamoros is a valuable asset, although their stronghold over Tamaulipas has diminished over time. The city's society and economy, as well as the state's overall stability, were severely harmed by the conflict between the Gulf Cartel and Las Cetas. Matamoros is a hotspot for human trafficking. The Gulf Cartel coerces migrants into committing crimes like drug trafficking across the border, and some go as far as assassinations. Migrants in Matamoros and Renasa become highly exposed to criminals while waiting for their smugglers to transfer them across the border. The Gulf Cartel's operations are quite hard to keep track of today, but one thing is for sure, they are very much active since every now and then, brutal execution videos show up online with them doing horrific things to victims. As of today, they seem active in Tamaulipas, close to the U.S. border. This is a crucial territory for the majority of drugs entering the U.S. Needless to say, they collect a ton of taxes from other cartels passing through their territory. They operate mainly in fragmented groups that track their origins to the original Gulf Cartel founders. These include the Metros, Rojos, and Panthers. The Metros. Much as Asiel Cardenas Guellen founded the Metros in Matamoros in the 1990s, their power base is now firmly established in Renasa and along Tamaulipas's northern border in the communities of Camargo, Meyer, and Miguelayoman. This control has endured through successive rivalries, as the Metros have been at the center of the Gulf Cartel's continuous fragmentation. The Metros was for a time led by Jorge Eduardo Castilla Sanchez, who took most of the cartel's power after the deaths and arrests of several Cardenas Guellen family members. In 2011, the Rojos, a competing faction that supported the Cardenas Guellen clan, were forced out of the Tamaulipas border area to the south. The Metros were the focus of a violent campaign by the Scorpions in 2021, which culminated in the deaths of 19 people in Renasa. In July 2021, they formed a truce with the Scorpions and Rojos. This relationship was briefly screwed up when the Metro's commander, Alfredo Jose Hernandez Campos, alias Comandante Calamardo, was discovered dead in September 2021. Between Renasa and Nuevo Laredo, the Metros have fought the Northeast Cartel for control of local municipalities. These territories on the other hand, seem to be in the hands of the Northeast Cartel for now. A quick side note, Cartel del Noreste, which translates to the Northeast Cartel is one of the surviving splinter groups that came out of Las Cetas. We shall look at them in more detail in an upcoming episode of Narco 101. The Rojos The Rojos basically broke away from the metros in 2011. Despite their roots in the Cardenas Guellen family, they now hold less area in Tamaulipas than their rivals. Their power base is focused in Altamura, Siwadid Madero, and, most crucially, Tampico, in the state's far south, along the Veracruz border. They have been involved in occasional conflicts, but have largely avoided the latest bloodshed in Renasa. In July 2021, they were members of the Gulf Cartel ceasefire. They are basically a very fringe group of narco bandits. The Panthers These are a smaller Gulf Cartel offshoot based in Tamaulipas in southeast, but have received little attention recently. Elino Salazar Flores, alias Pantera Seis, founded and led the group, which was made up of former police personnel who were used for assassinations. The group stayed silent after Salazar Flores's arrest in 2014. The municipalities of Abasala, Sada La Morena, Aldama, 
and Gonzales are currently part of their jurisdiction. These routes serve as a vital pathway for drug smuggling from Veracruz to the Mexican border. Because there have been few outbreaks of violence there, it's safe to assume the Panthers collaborate with other Gulf Coast factions in the state. Depending on where you stand, you can say the Gulf Cartel is no more, or that they operate as splinter groups that are a mere shell of their old self. One thing is for sure, they are no longer the narco behemoths they once were. Thank you for being with me on this fourth episode of Narco 101. Please subscribe to Baggage Unclaimed, leave a like or comment. Your engagement helps keep the lights on around here, and if you'd like to support us even further, please consider becoming a channel member. Link in the description. MS-13, a rival gang, may have frightening tattoos, but Los Zetas is the most violent. Drug cartels are notorious for their brutality and inhumanity around the world, but Los Zetas has taken it to a new level. Los Zetas are often regarded as the most vicious and inhumane drug organizations in history. Exhibit A, after refusing to pay a ransom, or take jobs as hitmen, the gang slaughtered 72 kidnapped migrants at a secluded property in northeastern Mexico in August 2010. Las Zetas has been tied to a number of previous Mexican mass murders. Welcome to Baggage Unclaimed. This is the very first episode of Narco 101. In this series, we take a deep dive into the narco world and personalities in as much detail as possible. I have to provide a disclaimer. These episodes are absolutely intended for documentation and educational purposes only. The guys are in no way inspirational or impressive. So, don't even think about it. It feels weird that I even have to mention this considering how many grotesque videos we have unpacked from these folks. Please subscribe, leave a like or comment if this is something you are or might be interested in from time to time. I publish new episodes every other day, and your engagement helps this episode, and many more like it get suggested to a whole lot of new audiences. We are rapidly growing thanks to your participation and positive support, so thank you. That being said, let us get right into some Narco 101. Inception and Early Operations Las Zetas is a Mexican crime syndicate that was founded in 1997 as the enforcement arm of the drug trafficking Gulf Cartel, but broke away in 2010 to form its own criminal organization. The organization was recognized for its ruthless tactics and well-organized structure. During the late 1990s, Gulf Cartel boss Ocio Cardenas Gillen grew increasingly paranoid as he gained regional influence and prominence in Mexico's Tamaulipas. The Gulf Cartel was not entirely under his control. Dylan had to bend the knee or die, at the hands of a number of rivals across Tamaulipas. He was well aware that his future would be filled with violence and bloodshed. The youthful cartel boss needed to have an elite bodyguard force. He turned to Arturo Guzman de Sina, an ex-Mexican Army Special Forces officer, and inquired where they could locate such men. Having been in the Army, Arturo Guzman persuaded at least 31 soldiers to leave military service and fall under his leadership, to safeguard the Gulf Cartel's leader. Through rigorous negotiations, they agreed to join. I'm assuming the negotiations simply involved throwing stacks of money at the men. And just like this, Las Zetas was formed. Some of these men had served with the Special Forces Airmobile Group, GAFE, a Mexican Special Forces unit. They had received advanced training, and some had completed a training the trainer's program. 
All of the new recruits had everything they needed to form a paramilitary narco army to defend the boss and carry out his orders. These individuals would undoubtedly go on to form one of the most brutal, disciplined, and well-organized narco armies the organized drug crime world had ever seen. At least until CJNG was formed. Vicious brutality defined Las Cetas. Their martial philosophy was kill, kill, kill and overkill. Which goes without saying, they religiously lived by. Dillon expanded his operations once he felt safe. Las Cetas' first phase, which lasted from 1997 to October 2004, was defined by two key roles, protecting the principal and hunting down opponents. Most of these secret missions into cities and towns across Tamaulipas were led by Las Cetas' three most trusted men. Arturo Guzman, Z1. Virgilio Gonzalez Bazana, Z2, and Heriberto Lascano, Z3. Their main orders were to arbitrarily execute Gillen's rivals and ensure that the Gulf Cartel became the most powerful drug trafficking organization in Tamaulipas and along Mexico's Gulf Coast. The Las Zetas training enabled a high rate of operational success. Unprecedented acts of savagery were frequently used to conclude operations. Early Las Zetas operatives claimed, quote, If you frighten your enemy enough, you may defeat him without having to fight. Las Zetas' early success was largely due to their military training. Las Zetas' involvement in the Mexican criminal justice system raised a bar in terms of both professionalism and violence. Rival organizations would have to increase their recruiting and training in order to keep up with Las Zetas in terms of brutality and violence. They expanded and evolved as they worked to solidify control of Mexico's Gulf Coast for their boss. From early 2002 to late 2004, Las Zetas went through an evolutionary phase that changed the core structure of the paramilitary operative organization. On January 14, 2002, the Mexican military apprehended Dillon's main accountant, Ruben Saucedo Rivera. On November 21, 2002, Arturo Guzman de Sina, Z1, was killed in a firefight with soldiers in the Tambres. On March 14, 2003, less than four months after Guzman's death, the Mexican military apprehended Gillen in Matamoros. As a result of all of this, Las Zetas became more actively involved in the drug business as well. It also played a vital part in halting an effort by the Sinaloa cartel to seize control of Nuevo Laredo, a key city for storing cocaine and transporting it into the United States from 2005 to 2006. As a result, Las Zetas gained a reputation for cruelty and violence. Smuggling people, kidnapping, extortion, and arms trafficking were among the activities that the gang expanded to, beyond protection and enforcement. The theft of more than $1 billion in oil from Pemex, Mexico's national oil company, was also attributed to the Las Zetas and other cartels. Heriberto Lascano, also known as El Asco, or Z3, took over the leadership of the group after Arturo Guzman, Z1, was killed in 2002, and his deputy, Rogelio Gonzalez Bazana, Z2, was captured the following year. With Lascano at the head of Las Zetas, Osil Gillen in prison, and the Gulf Cartel weakened, Las Zetas entered its second phase of development, one that lasted until January 2010. Growth and Departure from the Gulf Cartel In October 2004, Las Zetas began a new mission, gaining independence from the Gulf Cartel. Heriberto Lascano directed the recruiting of Guatemala's elite ex-Special Forces units to bolster the protection of his own high-ranking agents and assist with training and recruitment. 
the established clandestine recruitment channels by reaching out to military contacts. He increased the number of training camps in Tamaulipas, where new recruits learned the fundamentals of small unit tactics, firearms use, and communications. And he oversaw the creation of a clandestine radio network. For years, the Mexican military has attempted but failed to dismantle the vast network of radio antennae created and operated by Las Cetas. This vast and sophisticated radio network is unassailable. This is basically one of the reasons why this group has rock-solid and safe communications, which is very important when running such a massive crime organization. Las Cetas' new leader expanded the organization's revenue-generating operations beyond extortion to include control along drug trafficking routes, known as plazas, where inferior organizations would have to pay a tax in exchange for safe passage. Heriberto Lascano also helped to strengthen an accounting system that would later become the backbone of Las Zetas' activities throughout Mexico and Central America. Whether he was a visionary or not, Lascano understood that the success of the organization he led would be directly proportional to its ability to generate and safeguard money. As a result of these and other actions, Las Zetas emerged as a separate organization from the Gulf Cartel. After Osiel Cardenas Gulen's arrest and eventual death, the leadership of the Gulf Cartel was assumed by Jorge Eduardo Castilla Sanchez, also known as El Cos. In a hasty move, El Cos progressively gained control of the Gulf Cartel as the two organizations drew apart, and in early 2010, he ordered the kidnapping and death of a Las Zetas operative in Reynosa, a city in northern Mexico. Miguel Trevino Morales, Z40, the second in command of Las Zetas, sought the release of the captive. When El Cos refused, a battle broke out. The final phase of Las Zetas' rise, as well as the weakening of the Gulf Cartel, was defined by this fight. The death or arrest of the majority of the Gulf Cartel's initial members contributed to this transition. As a result, they began to expand their recruitment efforts, bringing in former Guatemalan Special Forces personnel, among others. Las Zetas' size remained a mystery, with estimates ranging from a few dozens to several thousand people. Las Zetas' brand name, which became a synonym for intimidation and inspired a swarm of imitators, contributed to the ambiguity. Las Zetas' operational capacity remained strong despite its separation from the Gulf Cartel. They resisted pressure from a slew of competing crime syndicates to keep control of key trafficking routes along Mexico's east coast. They have a substantial presence in Guatemala, where it has enlisted the help of corrupt police officers as informants. Las Zetas' birth and evolution can be seen as a symptom as much as a cause of the militarization of the Mexican drug wars. Competition between large trafficking organizations increased in the first decade of the 21st century, and conflicts between traffickers and the police and military became increasingly common. After establishing itself as an independent cartel, Las Zetas was confronted by an alliance of the Gulf and Sinaloa cartels, as well as La Familia Michicana all of whom claimed that Las Zetas had undermined and discredited the drug trafficking industry. The former bodyguards surged back into the criminal underworld, with well-established bases in Huevo Laredo, Fresnillo, Veracruz, and Cabin in Guatemala, after an initial setback in early 2010, when they defended their organization against an alliance of these three drug trafficking organizations stitched together by the Gulf Cartel. By late 2010, the gang was in a position to resume its extortion, taxing, and drug trafficking operations, after solidifying its status as a fully legitimate organized crime syndicate. Although drug trafficking has always been a part of Las Zetas' commercial portfolio, it has never been the organization's primary priority. They were at a disadvantage as it expanded, independent of the Gulf Cartel because it lacked contacts in Colombia and other Andean drug-producing countries. 
Miguel Trevino Morales was the driving force behind La Seda's entry into the cocaine business, owing to his position as the owner of one of the most valuable smuggling routes in the U.S. He was the driving force behind La Seda's entry into the cocaine business. It was a quick and direct route down the Interstate 35, in Texas, to one of the country's hottest drug markets, Chicago. Due to this quick access to ready markets, drug producers in Colombia did not hesitate to get into business with Las Cedas. This helped Las Cedas expand even further, creating connected wholesale points across the United States, with as many as 37 cities in the Midwest, Northeastern, and Southeastern regions of the United States by 2009. They basically had everything at this point. The product, suppliers, markets, routes, good communication, a massive paramilitary unit, and most importantly, a visionary leader. For a while, at this point it was everyday narco business as usual. Trouble in Paradise La Seda survived a coordinated offensive by rivals and the Mexican authorities in 2010 and 2011 that would have decimated most criminal groups. Part of the organization's surprise survival can be attributed to Heriberto Lascano's strategic vision and the organization's ability to absorb defeat while continuing to recruit, train, and expand its presence into new territory. Looking ahead to 2012 and beyond, the organization's greatest battle will most likely be fought between the two individuals who run it, rather than against the Sinaloa cartel, their main rivals. Miguel Trevino Morales, La Seda's second-in-command, is a former police officer from Nuevo Laredo who was known for being a reckless operator. Heriberto Lascano, on the other hand was a military strategist who was focused on his strict methodology, fundamental strength, training and recruiting, and remaining alive. Inevitably, these two were bound to have managerial and operational differences. On October 7, 2012, special forces from the Mexican Navy tracked down Lascano near Progreso, Cahula, where he was driving a white van with one gunman. The two cartel members opened fire on the Marines, resulting in a shootout that claimed the lives of Lascano, his bodyguard, and one Marine. This automatically left Miguel Trevino Morales as the leader of Las Setas, and all hell broke loose. Their brutality and expansionist operations tremendously increased. Las Zetas retaliated in kind, increasing their infamy through a series of increasingly dangerous provocations. They threw grenades into an Independence Day celebration in Marilia, Machokan state capital, killing attendees. They burned down a casino in Monterey, the state capital of Nuevo Leon, killing 52 people. They threw a grenade into the U.S. consulate in the same city, killing one U.S. federal agent and injuring another on a highway near San Luis Potosi. They kidnapped busloads of tourists going through Tamaulipas, killing many at a time and forcing survivors to battle to the death to stay alive. Their ferocity appeared to be not only infinite, but also frighteningly inventive. They put the public in a situation similar to that of the theater audience, seeing a compelling yet gruesome performance. What would Las Cedas do next? It was what could only be described as a reign of terror. The Las Cedas antics took place against a backdrop of unrelenting growth. From their base in Tamaulipas, they conquered most of Nuevo Leon, Veracruz, Tabasco, Cahula, and San Luis Potosi. They also made gains in more remote states such as Guerrero and Sinaloa, which are in the backyard of their main adversary, as well as far-flung international countries. This territorial expansion, combined with a list of crimes, painted Las Cedas as an unstoppable force. During this time, lots of videos, photos, and bodies kept dropping, documenting their escapades. We have looked at some of these gruesome and grotesque scenes in various baggage unclaimed episodes. For years, the show of arrests and military maneuvers seemed to achieve little. 
Mexico, and Las Sedas in particular, grew increasingly vicious. Las Sedas weren't the only gang causing concern in Mexico and baffling policymakers, but they looked to be dragging Mexico closer and closer to a cliff than any other. During this time, CJNG was coming into the scene, and if there is anything we have established about CJNG, it is that they are basically Las Sedas on steroids. Needless to say, the emergence of CJNG changed the dynamics of organized crime in Mexico, and Las Sedas was no exception. Even beyond their obvious motivation for eliminating their rivals, the dramatic violence was advantageous to Las Sedas for a time, it produced additional profits. The foundation of their kidnapping and human trafficking, for example, was brutality. They were able to demand protection money from both illegal organizations and respectable firms, thanks to a real threat of vengeance. Las Sedas were not only more bloodthirsty than their counterparts, but they also exploited this trait to evolve into a new type of crime syndicate. Extortion, human trafficking, retail drug sales, piracy, kidnapping, and black market oil and gas sales were all part of Las Sedas' repertoire of illegal activities. If Las Sedas' two pillars were a flair for violence and a diverse approach to crime, the third was the group's close relationship with the government. Unlike their Sinaloa counterparts, the Zetas have a limited history of collaborating with federal officials. Rather, the organization dominated state politics, integrating the governments of Humberto Morera and Cauhula and Fidel Herrera in Veracruz, among others, under their organizational hierarchy. Herrera's candidacy was reportedly funded with millions of dollars by Las Zetas in 2005, securing his compliance for the rest of his six-year term. During Herrera's term, ADT Petroservicius, which was formed with Zeta's money, and was owned by Money Launderer, and Herrera's friend, Francisco Colorado Sessa, won millions in Veracruz oil servicing contracts. Let us just say, that Las Zeta's expansionist and managerial strategies were rock-solid and very well-calculated. The sweeping takeover of state governments, the unparalleled commercial diversification, and the hunger for spectacular violence all worked together in the Las Zeta's operations. Business diversification necessitated more violence. Diversification necessitated collusion with government officials. Government collusion permitted gang members to commit atrocities with impunity. The threat of violence drove officials to collaborate with Las Cetas. Their power grew as a result of these mutually reinforcing features, which heightened public fear. However, it's unclear whether it reflected the gang's power. Much of the violence, on the other hand, appeared to be the result of a shattered chain of command and a lack of competence among the ranks. Both the Casino Royale massacre and the attack that murdered Jamie Zapata were purportedly botched. This caused brutal retaliation from their rivals in the Mexican army. A quick side note. Las Sedas operative set a casino on fire in Monterrey, Nuevo Leon, Mexico, on August 25, 2011, killing 52 people. Over a dozen people were injured, and over 35 people were trapped for several hours as a result of the attack. This is known as the Casino Royale massacre. This incident made Las Zetas even more hated by the public and forced the government to rain hellfire on them in retaliation. On the other hand, Jamie Jorge Zapata was an immigration and customs enforcement and homeland security investigation special agent who was ambushed and murdered by the Mexican criminal group Las Zetas in San Luis Potos, Mexico. He was one of two agents ambushed in a region of the country that was becoming more engulfed in drug violence. Zapata's assassination was the second most high-profile assassination of a U.S. agent in Mexico. This meant serious trouble for Las Zetas. Overall, the Zetas earned between $15 and $20 million per month from their major cocaine distributor in the Midwest, and they kept a cash reserve of between $30 and $50 million in Mexico.
According to a former leader, the organization's total earnings from drug sales in the United States was around $350 million. That money, however, was revenue rather than profit, and much of it was going to their Colombian suppliers. At the height of his authority, Miguel Trevino Morales ruled over half of the Mexican and Central American crime world with impunity. He made millions of dollars by shipping tons of cocaine to the United States and investing the proceeds in casinos, cattle ranches, high-end sports cars, and racehorses. Miguel Trevino Morales was untouchable by U.S. investigators in Mexico, where he had police and politicians on his payroll, until he started on a bold scheme to launder his drug millions in quarter horse racing in the U.S. and construct a racing empire with his elder brother, Jose Trevino Morales, as the front man. It was the start of his undoing, said Steve Pennington, who led IRS criminal investigator who helped the FBI unravel the money laundering scheme. All this aside, Los Zetas were at war with almost every other major cartel, and this spread them a little too thin. CJNG was at the helm of these attacks. One of Los Zetas' heaviest blows came with the arrest of Miguel Trevino Morales in 2013. This left the group under the leadership of his brother, Omar Trevino Morales, known as Z42, who was also arrested in 2015. On March 23, 2015, Ramiro Perez Moreno, also known as El Rana, or The Frog, a potential successor of C-42, was also captured along with a couple of other Las Zetas members. On February 9, 2018, Mexican authorities arrested the new leader, Jose Maraguzer Valencia, alias C-43, in Mexico City. Jose Carmen, better known as El Comandant Reyes, the regional boss of Las Zetas operations, was apprehended in Oaxaca in January 2020. He was thought to be in charge of the gang's operations in 12 municipalities in Veracruz, including the state's most violent towns, Akakan, Minatitlan, and Coxacolcos. Let us just say things were not really going in a very favorable direction for Las Zetas. During this time, many foot soldiers and high-ranking members were arrested or killed during drug busts, heavy military operations, and rival gang clashes. Las Zetas started slowly losing notoriety and influence in their jurisdictions as one misfortune befell them right after another. Due to this, many members deserted, ran away, or simply disappeared. As of today, Las Zetas is a fringe minority in organized crime, with most of the members living low-key, or just a bunch of hopeless imitators operating in the name of Las Zetas. Many believe the group is dismantled, but others are of the consensus that they are very much operational, just a lot more careful now. One thing is for sure, they are not the big dogs anymore. This episode is mainly focused on the overview of Las Zetas as a group, that is to say, formation, operations, activities, jurisdiction, leadership, and downfall. However, these guys have a long rap sheet riddled with massacres and murders of civilians in their hundreds. We shall be looking at those individually in subsequent baggage unclaimed episodes. Thank you for being with me on this episode, and mass grave discoveries all increased in Jalisco with the formation of CJNG. CJNG is a criminal organization that arose from assassinations, captures, and sectarian conflicts among older cartels. It is notorious for its public relations operations and aggressive use of violence. Despite the apprehension of a number of key leaders, it is now Mexico's most serious criminal threat, and it appears to be on the rise. While the Mexican government considers the Sinaloa cartel to be the most powerful criminal organization in the country, it now faces a new rival, CJNG. The analysts and law enforcement in the United States and Mexico have identified as the only cartel in Mexico on an expansionary track since 2015. 
In this episode of Narco 101, we shall be taking a deep dive into the formation, leadership, and operations of this criminal organization. Formation of CJNG In July 2010, former Sinaloa cartel boss Ignacio Coronel, also known as Nacho, was killed by Mexican security agents, resulting in the formation of CJNG. Prior to his assassination, Coronel had full oversight over the Molino cartel's leader, Oscar Orlando Nava Valencia, also known as El Lobo. This criminal gang operated primarily in the states of Jalisco and Colima, and later expanded into Michoacan and Mexico City, moving product shipments and managing payments for the Sinaloa cartel. The Molino cartel might be described as a narco-logistic subcontractor. El Lobo had been captured by the time Nacho Coronel died, and the Molino cartel had split into two factions. La Resistencia and the Torcidas, also known as the Twisted Ones, who were accused by La Resistencia of giving up El Lobo to the authorities. In Jalisco, these two organizations fought for dominance in product trafficking in the power vacuum left by Nacho's death. The Torcidas evolved into what is currently known as CJNG, succeeding Nacho Coronel's operations and distribution network in the region. And this marked the birth of the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, CJNG. CJNG was founded by Nemesio Aseguero Cervantes, alias El Mencho, and his original top operatives were Eric Valencia, alias L85, and Martin Arzola Ortega, alias L53. All of these men had previously been members of the Molino cartel. The group has been linked to the use of heinous acts of violence. Homicides, forced disappearances, and mass grave discoveries all increased in Jalisco with the formation of CJNG. The cartel also used the moniker Matazetas, or Zetas Killers, to combat the mighty Las Zetas in Veracruz State. Matazetas, or Zetas Killers, is sometimes regarded as either another name for CJNG, or a particular cell of the group responsible for assassinations. The group claimed responsibility for a 2011 massacre in Veracruz that killed 35 people, and a month later, security agents discovered the bodies of around 30 people who appeared to be Las Zetas members. Introduction to El Mencho Considering the fact that the managerial success and operational profitability of CJNG almost entirely depends on El Mencho as an individual, it is only fair that we take a quick dive into his life to begin with. This paints a more detailed picture when covering CJNG as a criminal organization. Ruben Nemesio Aseguera Cervantes was born on July 17, 1966, in the modest farming town of Aguililla, in Michoacan's western province. According to some reports, his birth name was Ruben, but he changed it to Nemesio in honor of his godfather. His pseudonym El Mencho, a nickname derived from the phonetic derivation of Nemesio, <coughs> is more well known. El Mencho was born into an impoverished family and dropped out of school before completing his primary education. Juan, Miguel, Antonio, Marn, and Abraham are said to be his five brothers. He cultivated avocados for a living in his hometown when he was younger, but later immigrated illegally to the U.S. state of California in the 1980s. He used a variety of names and combinations to hide his identity, including Ruben Vila, Jose Lopez Prieto, Miguel Vladez, Carlos Hernandez Mendoza, and Roberto Salgado, among others. He was employed to take care of the Valencia family's avocado fields. The Molino cartel arose from this family, which was once known as the Avocado Cartel, because it smuggled marijuana hidden in avocado shipments, before moving on to marijuana and poppy farming. 
They were so powerful in their land that one of them, Jose, even became mayor in 1989, nominated by the Party of the Democratic Revolution, PRD. El Mencho became a plantation watchman and then a trafficker with them when he was just a teenager. He was already a member of the Molino Cartel, a product trafficking organization led by the Valencia family, when he traveled to the United States. In California, he joined a heroin ring with one of the clan's members, Abigail Gonzalez Valencia, alias El Chuini. To consolidate his ties with the Molino Cartel, El Mencho married Rosalinda Gonzalez Valencia, one of the clan leader's sisters. He and his brother Abraham were arrested in Sacramento, California, in 1992 and accused of being involved in a heroin distribution operation in Northern California. Both of them pled guilty to the charges, after reaching an arrangement with U.S. officials. El Mencho was sentenced to five years in prison. He was released from prison and deported to Mexico after three years. He joined the municipal police forces of Cabo Corrientes and Tamatlan in the state of Jalisco, after arriving in Mexico. However, after a short time, he left the police force and became a full-time member of the Molino cartel. El Mencho began his career with the Molino cartel as a member of the assassin team that guarded product boss Armando Valencia Cornelio, alias El Maradona. His employer was arrested by Mexican authorities on August 12, 2003. At the same time, a rival criminal organization known as Las Cetas, backed by the Gulf cartel, launched an armed assault against the Molino cartel in Michoacan. The attack led the Valencia family to flee to Jalisco. El Mencho, his father-in-law, Jose Luis Gonzalez Valencia, and Roman Caballero Valencia, fled to Guadalajara, the state capital. El Mencho and the Molino cartel made an alliance in Jalisco with the Sinaloa cartel faction led by Ignacio Coronel, alias El Nacho, a high-ranking product lord that we mentioned earlier, an ally of Joaquin El Charpo Guzman. El Mencho and his crew were in charge of the Sinaloa cartel's product operations, finances, and murders in the states of Colima and Jalisco under El Nacho. The Molino cartel's top leader, Oscar Orlando Nava Valencia, alias El Lobo, was captured on October 28, 2009. His brother Juan Carlos was also arrested the following year, on May 6, 2010. Coronel was killed in a firefight with a Mexican army two months later. The Molino cartel began to disintegrate after their demise, and El Mencho attempted to take over its leadership structure. Lupidio Mahara Ramirez, alias El Pilo, who worked closely with Oscar Orlando and Juan Carlos before their arrest, was considered by one sect within the Molino cartel to be the group's head. One of the clan members, Eric Valencia Salazar, wanted El Mencho to take the lead. The other Molino bloc was then asked by El Mencho to deliver over Gerardo Mendoza, alias Takato, sometimes known as Kachi, who had been accused of murdering a group of men who had reported to him in Ticoman, Kalima. The other division rejected El Mencho's demand, sparking a rebellion inside the division. The Molino cartel was split into two divisions. La Resistencia was on one side, and Los Torcidos, led by El Mencho, on the other. Los Torcidos accused La Resistencia of turning an Oscar Orlando to the authorities. The two factions fought for product smuggling territory in Jalisco, resulting in a conflict. To establish legitimacy, El Mencho's gang launched a propaganda campaign against its opponents, accusing other gangs of extorting people, businessmen, and government officials. I am not sure if they carried out some of these acts and then turned around to accuse other cartels, or if they legitimately distanced themselves from the atrocities committed by others. The conflict was eventually won by Los Torcidos, who strengthened their power in western Mexico. The Jalisco New Generation Cartel, CJNG, was formed as a result of this.
This is where the rise of CJNG meets El Mencho's rise to leadership. According to the local press, El Mencho hides in the Jalisco Mountains and suffers from kidney failure, which keeps him on dialysis and confined to a bed, allowing his lieutenants to manage the organization. His reported illness puts him at risk of catching the COVID-19 virus. El Mencho's son, Ruben Asagara Gonzalez, alias El Menchido, was extradited to the U.S., and his daughter, Jessica Johanna Asagara Gonzalez, was arrested while attending one of her brother's hearings in February 2020. El Mencho consolidated his position as commander of CJNG by expanding the organization's territory and influencing government officials. CJNG has grown from a minor breakaway criminal gang to one of Mexico's most powerful criminal organizations. In the process, El Mencho earned himself the title of one of Mexico's most wanted criminals. His rise to prominence is attributable to a multitude of causes, including CJNG's brutality and sensationalized public demonstrations of violence. CJNG's direct attacks on Mexico security forces earned El Mencho a reputation as a principal enemy of the state and a dangerous criminal among authorities. In addition, the assassination of Mexico's former top criminal bosses allowed El Mencho to achieve prominence. By fighting off attacks by criminal gangs such as Las Zetas and the Knights Templar Cartel, he consolidated his activities throughout Jalisco and its neighboring states. According to government reports, he is in charge of CJNG's entire product trafficking operations in the states of Jalisco, Colima, and Guanajuato, where he established a methamphetamine production and distribution hub. Their operational capacity is focused on eight states, Jalisco, Colima, Guanajuato, Nayard, and Veracruz, where they have a tight grip on product trafficking operations, and Morelos, Guerrero, and Michoacan, where they combat other criminal gangs. Between 2014 and 2016, Mexico City was the only region in the country where CJNG lost its geographical presence. CJNG is said to have international contacts with criminal organizations in the United States, Latin America, Europe, Asia, and Africa. On a global scale, CJNG is primarily concerned with the trafficking of coke and methamphetamine. El Mencho was able to turn CJNG into one of the most profitable criminal organizations in Mexico. The government estimates that El Mencho's group has total assets of almost $50 billion. This accomplishment was shared with his brother-in-law Abigail Gonzalez Valencia, who led Las Cubanas, a product trafficking organization affiliated with CJNG. On February 28, 2015, the Mexican Navy apprehended Abigail. The capacity of El Mencho to strategize market and customer developments contributed to his success in the product trade. Initially, CJNG produced methamphetamine, but they moved to heroin production when the consumer demand changed. Before I forget, if you are a regular or new consumer of baggage unclaimed episodes, you may notice we discuss very explicit and sensitive subject matter. Due to this, YouTube automatically demonetizes pretty much every single episode once put out. Please consider becoming a channel member. Your support directly helps keep the lights on around here. Link in the description. If you are listening to this as a podcast, please join us on YouTube as well. I very much appreciate it. Operations and Brutality of CJNG CJNG started in September 2011 with a narco message announcing their arrival and aiming to cleanse the state and restore law and order in Boca del Rio, Veracruz. Through the Veracruz massacre, they announced their arrival and intent to purify the state and restore law and order. This approach was used in states across Mexico, from Jalisco to Colima, Guanajuato to Michoacan, on varying scales of violence and death. These were known as the Veracruz massacres. 
CJNG effectively waged war on all other big cartels in Mexico, including the Sinaloa Federation, which was regarded as their most powerful opponent in 2014, and carved out a new territory for its distinct criminal operations. The Veracruz Massacres of 2011 Two trucks containing 35 bodies were discovered in an underpass near a shopping center in Boca del Rey, Veracruz, on September 20, 2011. Although all of the bodies were initially thought to be Las Zetas members, it was later discovered that only six of them had been involved in small crimes, and none of them had been involved in organized crime. Some of the victims had their hands tied and appeared to have been severely tortured. This was a massive public relations nightmare for CJNG, but they did not care. They had a mission, and were going to stop at nothing to have it completed. Mexican officials discovered 36 bodies in three different dwellings in Boca del Rey, Veracruz, on October 6, 2011. The Navy discovered the bodies of 20 people inside a house in a residential neighborhood first. They discovered 11 more bodies, while exploring another house. A single body was discovered in the third and final house. The state administration of Veracruz confirmed four other bodies separately. Due to the narco-violence, State Justice Attorney General, Ronaldo Escobar Perez stepped down and resigned a day later. Almost 10 more bodies were discovered in the city of Veracruz a day after his resignation. In Veracruz on October 7, 2011, the Jalisco New Generation Cartel was also responsible for 67 different murders. Bodies were dropping quite literally every single day, and the situation in Veracruz was grim, to say the least. The state of Veracruz had reported 100 CJNG-related murders in only 18 days by the 9th of October 2011. The Sinaloa Massacres of 2011 On November 23, 2011, 26 bodies were discovered in multiple abandoned trucks in Sinaloa, 16 of them burned to death. The incident began in the early hours of the morning in Caliacan, Sinaloa, when a truck on fire was discovered. When the fire was put out, authorities discovered a dozen victims inside the truck, all of whom had been burned to death, and had wood remains on top of them. Handcuffs were placed on all of the victims. At 7 a.m., police received anonymous calls from residents reporting that another vehicle was on fire near Caliacan's northern city boundaries. The Ford Ranger was on fire, and four bodies were inside, wearing bulletproof vests and handcuffed. During the night, ten more bodies were discovered in other municipalities. These were most certainly CJNG members. La Sedas allegedly carried out the executions in retaliation for CJNG's massacres in Veracruz. The Jalisco Massacres of 2012 Inside a Toyota Sienna and a Ford Ecosport, the chopped up remains of 18 people were discovered near the U.S. retirement homes of Chapala and Jalisco, just south of Guadalajara. The 18 heads were discovered among the dismembered bodies, some of which had been frozen, some had been covered with lime, and the remainder were in a stage of advanced decomposition. The abandoned vehicles were discovered on the side of the highway early in the morning on May 9, 2012, after an anonymous call informed the police. As a result, they were towed to government facilities to be unloaded. Authorities confirmed that the killers left a message, likely from Las Zetas and the Molino cartel. Tomas Coronado Olmos, the state's attorney general, alleged that the massacre was a retaliation for the deaths of 23 people in the Nuevo Laredo shootings earlier in 2012, carried out by CJNG. The Knights Templar Fiasco CJNG posted a video online on March 21, 2012. 
The video, which lasts just over four minutes, depicts numerous guys dressed in black, wearing ski masks, and highly armed, some of them, presumably CJMG leadership, were seated at a table, as seen in prior CJMG tapes. The men stated that they will clean up the states of Guerrero and Michoacan, and that CJMG has no issues with the federal government, the armed forces, or the federal police. So it was some sort of silent warning to the cops to stay the fuck out of their way. They would then launch a turf war against the Knights Templar cartel, who were allegedly abusing innocent people and operating through kidnappings, extortion, protection racketeering, property theft, and sexual assault. The April 17, 2012 Massacre On April 17, 2012, the dismembered bodies of 14 males were discovered in multiple plastic bags inside the Chrysler Voyager in Nuevo Loreto, Tamaulipas. The victims were all between the ages of 30 and 35. Officials said they discovered a message written by a criminal group, but they didn't say what the note said, or whether the victims were members of the Las Cetas or the Gulf Cartel. According to a note left behind by the criminal organization, they planned to clean out Nuevo Laredo by murdering Las Cetas members. By now we have an idea of the guys that are so obsessed with their janitorial roles of cleansing the place and getting rid of Las Cetas. Something strange happens with responsibility for this massacre. All signs point to CJNG, but the Sinaloa cartel somewhat claims credit. El Charpo himself released a statement to the public, quote, We have begun to clear Nuevo Loreto of Zetas because we want a free city, and so you can live in peace. We are narcotics traffickers, and we don't mess with honest workers or business people. I'm going to teach these scums to work Sinaloa style, without kidnapping, without payoffs, without extortion. As for you, 40, I tell you, that you don't scare me. I know you sent H to toss heads here on my turf, because you don't have the stones, or the people to do it yourself. Don't forget that I'm your true father. For context, the 40 mentioned in the quote is mentioned in reference to Z40, who is Miguel Trevino Morales, the then bloodthirsty leader of Las Cetas. In our previous episode of Narco 101, we looked at Las Cetas. Please check it out. Link in the description. Attack on authorities. Six Mexican military personnel were killed in May 2015, when members of CJNG used a rocket propelled grenade to shoot down a Eurocopter EC-725 helicopter. CJNG established a reputation for itself by committing one of the most atrocious acts of violence in the Mexican narco conflict, displaying its willingness to oppose the government by launching spectacular attacks on security officers. The fact that they attacked a Cougar helicopter with rockets demonstrates the firepower of this organization. National Security Commissioner Monte Alejandro Rubido said, The attack occurred shortly after the Mexican government announced the commencement of Operation Jalisco, a campaign aimed at restoring security in Jalisco by weakening CJNG's strength and influence. In addition to shooting down the aircraft, CJNG orchestrated roughly 39 attacks across the state, including setting fire to banks, gas stations, private shops in the city, and buses obstructing highways and bridges in Guadalajara, one of Mexico's major cities. The violence left dozens of people injured and 15 dead, and despite CJNG's assurances that civilians would be protected, the population was terrified. The Kidnapping of Jesus Alfredo Guzman Salazar and Ivan Archivaldo Guzman 
On August 15, 2016, a group of narco-operatives abducted a group of diners who had come to La Leche restaurant in Puerto Vallarta, Jalisco, to celebrate a birthday, which could have sparked one of the worst narco-cartel battles in history. El Charpo Guzman Sons, Jesus Alfredo Guzman Salazar and Ivan Archivaldo Guzman, along with 18 other individuals, were presumably celebrating the latter's birthday, when a command entered the establishment, separated the women, and took six males, including the two sons. The video from the restaurant security cameras shows hitmen apprehending Ivan and Jesus Alfredo, beating them with weapons before escorting them out. This was a massive miscalculation, even according to CJNG standards. The brothers had been inducted into narco business from their teenage years. Due to this, the handling of certain parts of the family business and the decision to enter rival territory may have played a role in the kidnapping, given that Puerto Vallarta is known as CJNG territory. The kidnappings were most likely a challenge to El Chapo, aimed at demonstrating the kingpin's apparent weakened status behind bars. Ivan, Jesus, and the other kidnapped victims were subsequently released a little over a week later, sparking even more public suspicion. I am guessing serious negotiations and compromise were made, perhaps avoiding a massive narco-conflict that would have cost a whole lot of lives. The 2018 American Consulate Bombing Two grenades were thrown onto consulate premises in Guadalajara on December 2, 2018, at approximately 7.30 a.m., with one of them exploding and creating a 16-inch, roughly 40-centimeter, hole in the building's wall. The consulate general's office was closed at the time of the bombing, and no one was injured. It's unclear whether the attack was carried out by CJNG or by a rival gang, looking to smear CJNG's name. The attack took place hours after a police convoy cleared highway blockades erected in seven different locations by cartel members. Responsibility for this incident was not officially claimed by CJNG, but almost every source I have looked into highly suspects that CJNG was most definitely responsible. Slight Turbulence In March 2017, CJNG's internal conflict was exposed when El Mencho ordered the assassination of Carlos Enrique Sanchez, also known as El Cholo, a high-ranking CJNG member. El Cholo's assassination attempt failed. It is believed El Cholo was involved in the assassination of a CJNG financial operator known as El Colombiano. El Cholo and one of CJNG founders, Eric Valencia Salazar, alias L85, left CJNG and established the Nueva Plaza Cartel. Soon after the cartel was created, El Cholo was named the cartel's leader. This incident negatively exposed the inner workings of CJNG, but was almost immediately put to rest, and things soon went back to normal. Pretty soon, it was narco business as usual. CJNG has also been linked to high-profile assassinations of government officials. The gang attempted to assassinate Luis Carlos Najera, the former security secretary of Jalisco, in May 2018, and Omar Garca Harfich, the Public Security Secretary of Mexico City, in June 2020. In the same month, a judge and his wife were assassinated in the western state of Colima, where they had tried several cases against cartel members. CJNG has also been known to use idealistic propaganda to appeal to Mexican citizens, invoking solidarity and vowing to remove the regions of operation of other crime syndicates in the past, such as the Zetas and the Knights Templar. During the coronavirus pandemic, the group conducted such openly charitable efforts in crucial areas. For example, in June 2020, the gang delivered toys to youngsters in Veracruz, where they were fighting renegade groups from Los Cetas. 
members of CJNG also delivered boxes of groceries around Mexico, including Guadalajara, the country's second largest city. As of November 16, 2021, El Mencho's wife, Rosalinda Gonzalez Valencia, was arrested by Mexican authorities. For a long time, Rosalinda has been one of the main financial backbones of CJNG. It is said her financial brilliance is one of the reasons why CJNG is so profitable, and El Mencho is possibly a billionaire. She was detained for various crimes, with evidence pointing to her involvement in, quote, the illicit financial operation of an organized crime group. Needless to say, her arrest was a big blow to CJNG's operations. Rosalinda was previously arrested in May 2018, but was released on bail a few months later. Recently, reports appeared online that El Mencho had recently died on account of his poor health. Personally, I know nothing about that, and there are no clear reports that prove the man is dead. The dude could be somewhere in Monaco, living his best life. At least it is where I would go to spend my millions if I had any. Overall, the violence appears to have subsided for some time, but CJNG is still very much alive and active in almost all of their jurisdictions. Thank you for being